It's in the recording, all right, but it's uh, just on the headphones. <laughs> I think that's a fair warning of what's to come. Actually, I was very impressed that we managed to do an interview, our first interview ever, guys, without dropping any inappropriate words. That's I think. true. I'm proud of us, Yoram. Yes, we did very well. Um, and spoiler alert, we just did an interview. And Welcome to our very first interview. This is actually Plants and Pipettes, if you need the background. Yeah, the Plants and Pipettes podcast. And today is a special episode that's a little bit different from what we usually do. We don't have uh, several papers for you. We just have one paper. And this paper is not even discussed just between the two of us, but with the first author of the paper, which is the first for us. Yeah, so a bit of history. Um, on the blog, a couple of months ago, we published an article talking about this new cool species, which is called Pennycress. And Pennycress is kind of the cousin that's a relative of Arabidopsis, which is like our common weed that's a lab rat in plant science. And another co um, common cousin of these two guys is like canola, so rapeseed, which we use to produce like oil across the world. And um, we found out about this pennycress and the idea that pennycress could be developed as a new oil product. Um, and it has this really special quality that it can grow in cold climates, um, which so far none of the oils really can do. And it would actually bridge a gap. So first you grow your summer crop and then usually you have this period of time where the ground is just there and not growing anything. Um, and that's the winter time, but you could put this pennycress there and pennycress can grow in the cold months and... Yeah, up to minus 35 degrees Celsius is what we just uh, heard in the... Yeah, more spoilers, more spoilers. <laughs> so yeah, it grows in the in the upper Midwest uh, in the uh, uh, US and um, yeah, it bridges a big gap. And we ha published an article on this on the blog um, a while ago. Yeah, and then... Um, we kind of said, hey, we want to hear what's happening because although this is a really cool promising model or species, um, it hasn't been domesticated yet, So, which means it's it's lacking many positive traits that are needed to make it basically marketable. Um, and I guess a couple of weeks back, somebody tweeted us saying, hey, we've just made this paper. We've put it on um, BioArchive, which is kind of a preprint online depository um, for, for, for publications. publications, yeah, um, and said, "Hey, we've just we've just done this domestication. Like, have a look at it." And we thought the paper was super cool, and we reached out to them, and the first author, Ratan Chopra, agreed to have a little chat with us today. Yes, and that's what we recorded today. Um, so, yeah, this is the interview. Um, and um, if you have any questions in the end, uh, there's a way to get in touch with the first author himself. Uh, and yeah, please enjoy this interview and uh, let us know in the comments if you have any further questions. Yeah, and just as a quick comment, because ah, yeah. it's an interview style, um, we've got some jargon that pops in now and um, then. So we've added some more technical terms into the show notes, just if you want to check those out, if something gets a bit like, yeah. Yeah, if there's like spe uh, special terms that you might not know um, because you're not familiar with them, we try to explain most of them in the show notes. And we're still trying to work on that. So we've had some people comment that we, Yoram and I generally need to like tone it down a little bit in some topics. So we're working on it. Please feel free to point out when we screw up. Um, yeah. But we're, we're developing. And always ask us questions in the comments if, uh, if we use words that are not... Not comprehensible to the general audience. Or hell abuse at us if we do the wrong thing. Yes. No, keep the internet friendly, please, guys. Yes. Then, yeah, with that, uh, enjoy the interview.
Yeah. So firstly, like Ratan, thank you so much for like at tweeting us when you had the new publication up on BioArchive. This was like a bit of a celebrity moment. It was very exciting for us that somebody who actually was involved in the science was then like communicating with us. Um, and we also got a message from um, John Zedbrook, who is, we see is also on your paper um, on one of our blogs. So it seems like the Pennycrest community is just like a very friendly community. And I mean, maybe you're like a little bit of a smaller community and the interaction seems pretty cool there. Yes, no, uh, we were really excited that you guys wrote a blog on Pennycrest because it really gives us uh, visibility and also gives, since we are a small community, we wanted to spread this message and we were like, you are the right uh, mediator for us uh, telling the Pennycrest story, you know. How long has Pennycrest kind of been a thing for both of you? So when did you first start your research in the Pennycrest field? Well, so the Pennycrest story started uh, back in like 2010, uh, like uh, almost 2012, actually, to be exact. Um, it's very recent, yeah. Yeah, it's a very recent story, and uh, and things have really moved quickly in that regard to make that progress in a very short time. Maybe you want to introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners, so just uh, the people that we do this podcast for, they are not experts in um, specific uh, areas of molecular plant biology, but they have a pretty, uh, or we believe them to have a basic understanding of, of biology. Um, but it would be really cool to start this off with a little uh, introduction of yourselves, um, how you got into research and how you got to the specific research topic of Pennycress. Uh Okay, uh, I'll start by saying this. So this, uh, I'm Ratan Chopra. I'm a research associate, and I started. Mm -hmm. I joined this program in 2017. Uh, before this, uh, I worked on peanut and sorghum. Um, but the Pennycrest program was started by David Marks, who, who was supposed to be on this interview, <laughs> but uh, um, it was in 2012, and. Um, he started with uh, developing genomic resources and soon he realized that uh, Pennycrest is closely related to Arabidopsis and, uh, and then he did mutagenesis and among other things. We can talk about it, but that's the background. Okay, so maybe um, we could start then to introduce kind of the, the new paper that you guys have just put out. Um, we could start discussing what exactly Pennycrest is and why it's so exciting, because I think our listeners will be not so familiar with this species. Oh, yeah, definitely. We can do that. So do you want me to tell why we started on working on Pennycrest a little bit? Yeah, or like a brief introduction to like what's so cool about this, this species. Uh, so, to give you a background about why we wanted um, Pennycrest onto the system or on the landscape, because here in the upper Midwest of United States, what happens is you just grow corn and then there is a nine-month fallow season, and then you come back and plant soybeans. And those um, nine months... Sorry? Sorry, um, the nine months is just because it's too cold to grow anything yeah. in yeah. those... Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's too cold. Um, the weather is not permissible to grow any other crop. So um, as a result of that, there is issues which is really challenging for the environment. One, um, the soil erosion because of all the snow we get, um, it thaws and then there is soil erosion. And then when the corn is harvested, a lot of the nutrients remain in the soil and get leached into the drinking water and the well waters. 
mm-hmm. uh, making it really unusable. Right now, almost like more than 70% of the lakes in Minnesota are like unusable because of the nitrate levels. So one, one of the solutions was bring in cover crops, which can survive these extreme harsh winters. And uh, our group, as a, like, we have a team which is like called as Forever Green Initiative, where we are trying several different winter annuals and perennial crops. Um, but our focus is on Penicrus uh, as a winter annual. And we have seen that it can really survive these negative 35 degrees C temperatures. So um, the, the aim of these cover crops as like a first aim for the environmental issues is basically that they just, they grow on the ground and therefore stabilize the soil by being there with their roots. They just stop the soil erosion from happening to such a, de- a, a big yes. degree. Yes. Is, that, is yes. that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Cool. And the second important thing is like it can uptake all these nutrients which would be leached into the groundwater or the uh, lakes. Instead, the plant can uptake that. So this is mainly the fact that we put a lot and a lot of fertilizer on the fields and then it's very inefficient at the moment. So we put fertilizer on our crops, but then there's always a whole lot left over at the end of the growing season. Yes, yes. Okay. So enter Pennycrest. Pennycrest is now the new star of our show. Right. <laughs> how, how does Pennycrest win out against the other possibilities for cover cro- uh, crops? Like what's so cool about Pennycrest? Well, one of the things, uh, coolest thing is winter hardiness. Um, it can survive really extreme temperatures. Like this year, we had some record uh, cold days, um, especially in month of Jan and February. Like we had like a couple of days of negative 35C. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and right now you go out there and the plants uh, were fine. They are growing. Now they are flowering already. And Penicrus is one of the earliest flowering species on the landscape of this area. Like right now, if you go out to the field, you will see it's still brown and Penicrus is flowering already. Is Penicrus native to the area? So is there wild Penicrus growing there already? Uh, No, it's native to Eurasia. And it was introduced about uh, over, our assumption is like about 200 years ago, like people traveling from Europe vacation in Rocky Mountains and uh, other places, Canada, and that was introduced then. And just for our listeners who are not so familiar with the plant Pennycrest itself, can you just briefly describe what it looks like, so sort of the scale and the shape and everything of it? Uh, well, Pennycrest is almost, uh, how does it look like? It, it's like a big Arabidopsis in terms <laughs> of how it looks like. It's the feature only difference, you can see the leaf shape. Uh, is uh, not drastically different at the early rosette stage, uh, but then it grows a lot bigger. And then the silic uh, shape is different, like the pod shape is different, where in Arabidopsis you see that elongated pods, but in Pennycrest you see these uh, two wings, and it looks like a penny, so that's why it's called Pennycrest. Ah, ah, cool. So it's basically a big weed, which then has these kind of disc-shaped things coming off it, which are the seed-containing capsules. I actually yes. thought that it looked a little bit like one of these stingrays that you see in the ocean, but like a little bit rounder because it has um, kind of a central region and then it's got like some sort of wings coming off the side even. Um, it's right, very cool. Right. Yeah. So so the, the winter hardiness is one thing of the pennycress, but if I remember correctly, it has also commercial, commercial uh, value, right? 
Uh, right. So the way the one of the reasons it was picked was because it has a really good oil qualities, natural, which can be used for biofuel industries. Um, but then it was not necessarily optimized. And we are now, uh, uh, since we are domesticating it, we are trying to make sure that we get the right characteristics, which will make it more commercially valuable uh, down the line. Um, why are we not using a penny crest already right now? So why why can't we just, um, if it survives the winter, why can't we just grow it on the fields already like this? Uh, so there is not known, much known about the agronomics of it. So our team is working on uh, understanding the agronomics on how to grow it, how are we going to plant it, what kind of equipments we're going to use, uh, how is the seed handling going to happen, the storage and among other things. So that's still known to be determined because it's a weedy species uh, and it's not been adopted. So all these things need to be characterized. Okay, so maybe we can discuss the kind of current paper. So this is something that you guys put up on BioArchive a couple of months ago. Um, and it's called Progress Towards the Identification and Stacking of Crucial Domestication Traits in Pennycress. So maybe you guys would you'd be able to walk us through some of the traits that you um, put into Pennycress, which made it a little bit more desirable. So first discussing like what was wrong and then how you kind of fix the problem um, by doing this, this domestication. Okay, yeah, I can do that. So Pennycress, as uh, you know, uh, it's a weed and it has a lot of undesired characteristics like any other weed would have or any of the um, any of the modern crops you see have these major issues like which were domesticated had issues like ununiform uh, maturity they mm -hmm. had issues like shattering uh, so our first step in penny trust was trying to look at earliness and uniform maturity um, so this is basically the idea that all of the crops should reach flowering at the same time and then produce seeds at the same time yes yes okay yeah, so, so that's why we targeted earliness and early maturity. And um, to do this whole domestication process, where it was started, like David Marks back in 2014, he did um, genome sequencing. I'll give mm -hmm. a little bit of background about why and how we understood that it's closely related to Arabidopsis. So in 2014, um, when they did the genome and transcriptome sequencing and they try to look at one-to-one -one, um, correlation between the gene similarity and they saw like striking um, patterns like you could see almost you could pick a gene from Arabidopsis and find 85-90% similarity in Pennycrus and very less gene duplication. So David Marks decided to let's go ahead and do EMS uh, mutagenesis that would allow us to quickly identify uh, some of these recessive mutations what we need for domestication. So basically this one-to-one this -one similarity with Arabidopsis means that even though Pennycrest itself is a fairly new species to be studied, we basically already have all the information by looking at like the tons of work that's previously been done on Arabidopsis. Yes. So the idea was like it's already known in Arabidopsis why uh, utilize uh, energy onto doing these new uh, discovery. Instead, we can use the existing knowledge and find mutation in genes known to regulate these domestication traits. And you basically quickly, got a really cool shortcut there. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, it was amazing for me coming from a much more complex system like <laughs> peanut. 
tetraploid and then I came, worked on sorghum and here it's like you can just take a lot of shortcuts in terms of genes and which can uh, really help you identify some of the traits and also the um, mutations associated with those traits. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first thing you said is that you were trying to get them to have a shorter time to go from seed to, to produce flowers and producing seeds. Yes. And this you managed to basically successfully do. So you shortened the, the life cycle by 10 days, 10 to 14 days, I think it was in the paper? Yeah, almost 10 to 14 days. And we've seen that consistently over the years now. No, so we, so, uh, so we did this mutagenesis. So we had this huge uh, population, like about more than 15,000 M2 plots out in the field. Uh, and what we wanted to look for is, can we can these plant mutants survive the winters? One of the first criteria. Can you briefly and explain what these what these plots are? I guess not everybody is familiar with um, the concept of. I mean, you, you said you did this EMS screen, so you just created random mutations all over the genome. And what was the next step? Yeah. So then we took uh, we harvested the seeds like M2 seeds, and these. M2 seeds were planted in the field conditions, like into four by four plot size. Mm-hmm. Um, and then w- what we did was we let them grow, establish, and then in the following spring, we screened for several traits, be it earliness, shattering, um, seed characteristics, a lot of other, uh, many phenotypes. And what we wanted to see is if we find any interesting traits, did it also survive the winter because a lot of the mutations can affect the plant fitness and we didn't want to lose winter hardiness. So this is kind of one of the the downsides of doing EMS, right? So EMS works by basically just putting a whole lot of radiation which causes like damage to like certain DNA structures and the cool thing is you can then find interesting mutations but sometimes you get a whole lot of damaging mutations as well. Yes, yes, that's true. Okay, but you found some very interesting mutations in the end, which is great. Yes, and I'll tell you why EMS was much more useful in this Penicra story later in the uh, when I go down the line. So anyways, we were able to identify several lines which flowered early, but then it was not um, convincing to us to have like 60 lines which are early maturing. We mm-hmm. wanted something which is going to be early and it's going to be heritable. So we grew those again the following year. And we found this one line which flowered almost like 10 to 14 days earlier in the field conditions. And we did whole genome sequencing given the cost for genome sequencing has dropped uh, drastically. So we were able to sequence this mutant genome for like $300. Wow. (laughs) That's also for for me coming from research. That's that's almost the price it used to cost to just like do standard sequencing of stuff. (laughs) <laughs> at one point yeah, and, of like just uh, short oligos yeah. yeah no it's amazing the amount of cost uh, the drop in the expense for these sequencing projects um, yeah. so you looked at the whole genome sequence of your mutant of this early flowering mutant and then then what, what yes. did you see yeah so in the plant journal paper what I did was basically we developed a pipeline where you could kind of um, clean a lot of the mutations which may not be responsible for the trait you are looking at. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was able to pinpoint that, okay, here is a mutation for a gene. And then we had to do cohort analysis. So we did a cross. We created an F2 population. 
and then verified that this ELP6 mutation, uh, which is early flowering 6 uh, gene, um, resulted in uh, earliness in even in the greenhouse, suggesting that the mutation what we found is controlling earliness trait in uh, this particular mutant line. So early flowering 6 is ELF6, it's already been very well investigated in Arabidopsis. So this is how we yes. kind of have characterized it. And now you found basically exactly the equivalent gene in, in the right. grass. Right, right. And the cool thing about this uh, mutation was like it was in the right region uh, of um, the uh, gene. And we got the most desired phenotype because if you... Um, kind of uh, complete. If you have a complete loss of function in this gene, then you can lose the vernalization capacity of the plant, mm -hmm. and we don't want to do that. So our mutation was ex like um, if we had done CRISPR in this gene, then the first of all it was not on our target list to do CRISPR. Uh, we can do CRISPR, but we didn't. And uh, if you do CRISPR on L6, then you have a complete loss of function, resulting in um, loss of vernalization capacity and we don't want that mm -hmm. especially when we want to grow in the upper midwest region so basically what you're saying is that ems has this second advantage where you might find things that you you didn't know before so you get new information and better outcomes yes. than you would have if you had designed it in some ways yes exactly exactly and that's why ems was very beneficial for fenicus to not affect the plant fitness Okay, so now we've got plants which have a very shorter lifespan. They make seeds quite rapidly, so we can put them in the ground and have them all matured before we have to put the summer harvest in. What's the next thing on the list to improve? Um, so the pod shatter. So Penicrus, once it uh, reaches physiological matu uh, maturity, and you leave it out there in the field like mid uh, to late June, and if you have a windstorm or a rainstorm, um, anything like... It, the pods can shatter or even uh, a mechanical damage can result into 50% yield losses because all the seeds fall off from the silic and that's a huge loss for the farmers and, and we should explain to our, we should just explain quickly to our listeners that this is like this is what plants want to do because their aim is that once the seeds are mature they should release the seeds to get new offspring but the problem is yes. that as humans who want to eat those seeds, we don't want them to release the seeds. So actually, many of our crops that we have currently, we've had to stop them from releasing the seeds. And that makes them valuable that we can then collect the seeds in an easy way. Yes, exactly. And that's how all the other crops have been domesticated. So Okay. Yep. So how did you go forward to um, assess this trade? Yeah, so this is like a little bit funny story behind this, the shattering one. Uh, because we had so many plants to test for shattering, there was no way we could go and carefully examine each plant. So uh, what David did was he just sent a bunch of undergraduate students to the field <laughs> uh, with the stick in their hand. Um, and then they just uh, smashed the plant. And, and what we found was we found about six plants which retained the parts on them even with the harsher <laughs> conditions so you were just How not do you, very, you were just giving sorry. them a beating then yes we, we just beat the plants and saw which one did uh, retain the parts on them <laughs> But how do you know, like, this is a very non-standard thing, like a beating by a gr undergrad student. How do you know how hard they're being hit? Like, it's, it's quite a, a variable thing, I would guess. No, definitely. So, uh, yes, definitely. The first generation screen was like that. So we found six, pla <laughs> six plants and then we had to verify the next generation whether this is really true. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it inherited that trait pretty well. We were able to find uh, six plants which were having this reduced shatter phenotype. I actually, that's, I want to mention that that's something I really appreciated about your paper. Um, in all of the different examples, you usually have quite an easy method to do the first screening because you had these thousands and thousands of lines. And then you went to like a kind of more secure, like a bit more harder, but like more um, convincing uh, secondary testing. And this is like a very nice way of doing it when you have to screen so many lines. Yes, exactly. And it has to be more scientific at the second round for sure. Uh, What was the second round then for the seed shattering? Uh, so then we grew the plants again in the field. Uh, and then what we did was we used this alligator clip with the force meter mm-hmm. and then tried to look at how much force would be required to break these parts open. And then we saw that uh, the wild-type penicrus really didn't need much force to break the parts, whereas the mutants required much higher um, strength to break these parts. Uh, then we started examining the cell layers um, in the pod, like uh, the separation zone. And what we saw, there was this separation layer was missing in these mutants, resulting in uh, holding those siliques together for much longer time. So this is basically the part on um, the seam. So if you imagine a pea pod, it's like the, the edges, which is then the bit that opens up this kind of like right. thinner layer in between the two halves of right. any seed pod. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and then you traced, I noticed that you traced some of those back again to an Arabidopsis um, mutant, which also has been categorized before. Yes. And then you yes. also hinted that there's a couple more lines which you guys are still going to be, we'll be hearing about them later, I guess. There's some, something else which was not directly linked to Arabidopsis, so maybe it's something special for Pennycrass. Yes, so I mean, when we say that it's like Arabidopsis, it's just to utilize the knowledge to domesticate quickly, but there is a lot of interesting features in Penicras which are not necessarily reported in Arabidopsis mm-hmm. and the phenotypes associated with those genes. I mean, as you mentioned, the, the seed pod structure in itself is very, very different from Arabidopsis, so you can imagine there could be some divergence in this kind of, yes. in this feature. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Okay, so the next thing you're doing is playing around with the glucosinolates, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just as an introduction to, to our listeners who might not be familiar with the glucosinolates, um, it's a compound that gives the, the oil a, a bitter and, and uh, astringent taste, right? That, that makes it not suitable for consumption. Right, right. So the, the glucosinolates are the secondary metabolites, and there are more than 200 types of glucosinolates. Um, uh, like you might find glucosinolates in broccoli, Brussels sprouts. You know, a uh, lot of the Brassicacea species we consume for healthy be- health benefits. But the type of glucosinolate we have in Penicus is called Sinegrin. Mm-hmm. And it's an aliphatic uh, glucosinolate. And it is not uh, shown to be beneficial for human consumption. Instead, it can cause a lot of health issues if consumed. Um, and also those glucosinolates in Penicus gives it a really stinky smell like that's why it's called stink weed okay uh, it's a very very strong garlicky smell and it's um it smells pretty bad <laughs> okay so i was previously imagining like a cabbagey spell but now i'm like imagining like boiling cabbage with some garlic as well and getting yes, everything yes. kind of nasty okay yes, so you yes. had to knock that one out 
Yes, so we had to definitely knock that one out because we want to be able to use the meal after processing the oil or processing the seeds uh, for both human and uh, animal feed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, here we did the, so this was another, like we had 15,000 M3 lines harvested from the field, like M3 plants harvested from the field. And uh, we could have uh, basically done wet lab on 15,000 samples, uh, which would be really crazy. Uh, that yeah. would require at least a couple of PhD students to be spending their career on this. But instead, <laughs> uh, fortunately, we had um, two great minds in our team, uh, Jim Anderson and um, Kayla Altendorf, the other uh, PhD student, and they went and looked at an uh, instrument called near-infrared spectroscopy. Now, what it does is basically it's a non-destructive um, um, instrument, like it's a non-destructive approach to uh, estimate the seed characteristics. Uh, and that requires a dedicated equation, like you need to have a calibration equation to be able to use it. But here what we did, we took another shortcut. Instead of developing an equation for Penicrus, which would take another three, four years, uh, we instead scanned our mutant population using the related species equation, which was canola equation. Mm. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> and what we found was uh, we were able to see variation for many of the traits, uh, fatty acids, glucosinolates, um, uh, oil content, protein content. And that's why we were like, well, what we want to do is we want to domesticate. Our immediate intentions are not to develop equations. Instead, we'll just try to find lines with the variation in these glucosinolate levels. Mm-hmm. And to see if it's really true, uh, we did wet lab analysis on the representative samples. And we found pretty strong correlation, 0.85, I think, or 0.82, which is enough for us to do the germplasm selection uh, to move forward and start characterizing it. And in that process of screening 15,000 lines, we found this one line, uh, which was like near zero based on the scans. Mm-hmm. So absolutely no synagrin inside those pl- in those seeds. Yes. And so we thought it might be some experimental error. This instrument <laughs> may be crappy. Um, so so we, we just didn't believe that results. But year after, uh, a year later, um, David Marks, um, my advisor, he, he walked in. He's like, can you taste these seeds? Um, and, <laughs> And we tasted the seed. It did not have any kind of uh, glucosinolate uh, taste in it. And we were like, this may be true. So we did wet lab analysis, and we found significant reduction in glucosinolates. (laughs) I actually have to mention here, like, I don't want to undervalue the rest of your work, but this morning I came to your arm, and I was like, this is the coolest part of the paper. Like, (laughs) it says, numerous individuals indicated that the mutant seed had a pleasant nutty flavor. And so I can just imagine you going around and like, hey, taste it, hey, taste it, hey, taste it. Pleasant and nutty? Yes. It reminds me of the old days when it was like a standard method in science to just like taste the compounds you had especially it's the in proper chemistry. way to do science it's the real way things should be done i really don't do that that much anymore and i really like that in your paper it has a significant part in figuring out <laughs> yes. like this mutant yeah yeah so that's why we named it nutty because it had really after nutty taste and um, so yeah and then we did again whole genome sequencing like we did for other traits 
And we were expecting a mutation in upstream of the pathway, you know, like the transcription factor. But we found a mutation at the very end of the pathway, which is involved in the side chain modification. Mm-hmm. So it's the final, well, the final step to make that molecule. That molecule. Yeah, and it was really puzzling to us. We were like, the mutation is not a complete loss of function. It was just from glycine to arginine. Um, and we were like, how can it be true? So we did, again, a um, couple of two different experiments. One, we developed a F2 population, looked at co-segregation analysis, uh, and we saw that it was tightly linked with the phenotype and the genotype. And the other thing we looked at was just the HPLC data between the mutant and the wild type. And if you can see uh, on the figure 3C, that the sinigrin is is present in the wild type, whereas on the mutant, you don't see any sinigrin. Instead, the precursor, which is like 3SP or uh, 3TP, 3-methyl-thiopropyl, um, those are instead increased in the mutants. Kind of these two evidence suggested that this mutation is really causing the phenotype we see. And just to our listeners, of course, we'll have a link to this image and in text in the show notes, so you can click on it and have a look at this. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, the other cool thing about this, I, I can tell you guys, I don't know if we mentioned that in the paper, but, uh, you know, um, people have found this same pattern in canola back in 1970s that they had reduced glucosinolates. Uh, but even today, like, uh, they know the QTL regions, what causes the reduced glucosinolates, but I think we are the first one to even find the exact mutation what could be resulting in reduced glucosinolates, at least in penicris. Very cool. And it could be something similar in canola, theoretically, right? It could be a related yes, gene. Yeah. yeah, and the fun side we haven't reported in this paper is not only the seeds taste uh, nutty, but also the flower has a very unique fragrance, actually much desirable Ooh. fragrance. Ooh. But that's story for the future. Yeah. <laughs> this is like an extra thing. So you've got already environmental help, then you've got oil coming out of them, then you've got some, some meal that can be used for livestock or even to feed humans. And now you've also got like ornamental flower value added to this penny crest. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes, and that, <laughs> yeah, and that might attract a lot of pollinators because what ah, this happens is... Good, is yeah. Because one of the things is a lot of the pollinators um, do not uh, visit Minnesota early in the season because there's nothing for them to feed on. And if we have a desirable plant on the landscape, we might have a much better ecosystem service by having more pollinators visitation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really cool. So, yeah, after this trade, what was the next trade that you looked at um, to, to domesticate it? Uh, I think... In, in total, there were six trades, right? And if I counted correctly, we have three of them done now. We're on to fatty acid composition. Yes, so uh, in the fatty acid composition, so Penicris in the wild format has a compound called heuristic acid, uh, which is known to be toxic for human consumption since 1950s. Mm. Although many I think people I saw it causes heart problems or something like this. Yes, it causes heart problems, exactly. Okay. And so since we wanted to have multiple purpose for penicillin, not only just for biofuel, if we want to use it for oil, and one of the things with the presence of uric acid, it also 
causes undesirable viscosity issues with the biodiesel industry. Mm -hmm. So they they wanted to get rid of uracic acid as well. So we wanted to use it for food and also for biofuel. So we wanted to make sure that we can get rid of uh, this uracic acid. And again, we use this uh, similar approach for scanning these seeds. And we saw a couple of lines which had no uracic acid. and we validated that again with the gas chromatography, um, did a Sanger sequencing because we are, um, there's only one gene known to uh, affect the uracic acid composition in Arabidopsis. Mm-hmm. And we sequenced this Fe1 gene and we were able to find stop codons in both the independent lines. So again, uh, we have that be- one-to-one relationship very nicely yes. shown. Yes. And just to be sure, we did whole genome sequencing, but we already knew that the Fe1 is going to be responsible for reducing uracic acid and penicrose. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And you also affected the PUFAs, which are the polyunsaturated fatty acid levels. Yes. Um, so when we got rid of um, uracic acid, that was good, that was desirable. But then what happens as the result of that, everything gets pushed back up in the pathway. Mm-hmm. And you have increased levels of oleic acid, which is desirable for any crop or any industry. But then it also increased these 18 uh, oleic, linoleic and linoleonic, uh, which causes issues with the stability of the oil, long-term storage issues. Mm-hmm. So again, we use the similar uh, NIR instrument to look at variants which would have reduced um, unsaturated fatty acids. And we found several lines, uh, but we wanted to make sure that they can survive the Minnesota winters, right? Because the obvious target could have been FAT2, and we had FAT2 alleles, uh, but the problem with the FAT2 alleles was they would not survive the winters. So what's the problem? What's, what does FAT2 do that's different from FAT1 then? Uh, n- uh, f- uh, no, the FAT1 affects the uracic ah, acid. Uh, okay. Sorry. Uh, ah, sorry, what's the FAT2? I'm not, I'm not familiar with the gene, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so FAT2 is a fatty acid desaturase 2. Okay. And mm-hmm. what, oh, it affects the de- desaturation process in the whole uh, fatty acid biosynthesis. And if you knock it down, it does not produce any uh, linoleic and linolenic. Mm-hmm. And these fatty acids are very important not only uh, for just the seeds, but also they are important for the whole plant development. It affects the membrane fluidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result, uh, the harsh temperatures may just kill the okay. plant. Uh, okay, so you got something that was industrially more interesting, but um, uh, for the survival, it was actually a disadvantage. Yes, yes. So we wanted to make sure we don't affect the fitness, uh, not just the commercial side of it. And did you succeed in that? So did you did you get a... Yes. So then we found other two lines which had enough reduction in 18.2 and 18, uh, linoleic and linolenic. And we did um, look at the literature and we found mutation in not very commonly studied, but it's been studied a couple of times called ROD1, which is reduced oleate desaturase enzyme. Mm-hmm. And it's more seed specific, so it doesn't affect the whole plant development, but it is very specific to the seed. And again, we found two independent alleles there. And as a result of that, um, we were like, okay, uh, 
we have these two independent lines showing a reduced polyunsaturated fatty acid, and this is going to be our gene to target for our future uh, to decrease these PUFAs in our population. Hmm. So basically, up until this point, you've got all of these cool mutations which have led to desirable traits. But up till now, you've got them all in separate plants, right? So you've got one which has got like less seed shadowing, one that's got better oils, but they're all through the different lines. Right, right. So you have all these individual traits now in separate yes. plants. What? Yes. How, how did you move forward now to maybe combine them together? Or is that... Or how would you approach that now? What are, what are the next steps? So the nice thing was we were, uh, since it's closely related to Arabidopsis, we were able to identify genes and uh, mutations right quickly. And this happened within in less than, I would say, three years in total, which is really very fast progress, according to me, for these many traits. And... Um, Then we we took an advantage, we knew the markers, so we started using these allele-specific markers and started crossing them quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a pipeline described in our supplementary method uh, where we have tried to do it in the chamber where we can have a plant life cycle in less than 100 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and using these allele-specific markers, we've been able to combine a lot of these traits into one plant and right now we are at a stage uh, where we have four traits in one plant mm-hmm. uh, but like this is a demonstration in the paper has been like what's cool about that particular figure five has been that we combined this phase one and rod one uh, because we wanted to reduce these polyunsaturated fatty acids mm-hmm. Uh, we combined these Fe1 uh, and Rod1 uh, alleles together using this uh, pipeline described in the supplementary method and these allele-specific markers. We saw that we could go up to 60% oleic acid as a result of combining these two alleles. So it's kind and, of synergistic. Yes. And that was very exciting because the profile was almost similar to what's present for canola, high oleic canola today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we saw that the system works, so we started uh, stacking all these different uh, traits into one plant cool. right now. And we hope to have everything combined by the end of this year. Oh, that's really cool. I have to say, it's it's very impressive and it's even more amazing that it's been three years to go such a long way for a domestication. I mean, domestication is something that's usually taken hundreds of years with people. So this is just this is just super cool research. Yeah, yeah no, and I, I'll give all the credit to David Marks because he's <laughs> rel- relentless in terms of making these crosses. Like, I don't know. I, I, I do the bioinformatics side and the genotyping side, mm-hmm. but... Which is he, a lot he, of work, clearly, with all the, the whole genome sequencing that's happening. Yes, but keeping up with these all crosses and and his idea about identifying this is so closely related to Arabidopsis was the big step, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It made life easy down the line. Um, really, so we see that 60% oleic acid. And um, as I was mentioning earlier, that the FAD2 can give us a much desired phenotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, like... Uh, we can get up to 85% oleic acid as okay. a combination of Fe1, Fat2. 
but then it cannot survive the winters. The oil profile is almost, you can talk about olive oil, but if it cannot survive winters, then it's not useful for us. Yeah. That's actually one of the things I wanted to ask about. So did you notice any other trade-offs? So I was thinking already with the fact that you have this early flowering and early seed setting phenotype. Did you end up with like smaller seeds or seeds with less oil content based on just this first step? Or um, was that not something that you saw? No, especially with this particular early flowering line, what we have seen is uh, there is no negative effect on any of the plant development um, you talk about the plant height, seed size, seed yield. In fact, what we've seen is consistently this mutants outperforms the wild type in the field conditions. Amazing. Pretty cool. Yeah. And to, to, um, to move forward with your research, um, like I'm, I'm always really interested in these modern techniques and we've wrote about this on the blog a little bit and we mentioned it certainly in the podcast, like these genome editing techniques. Do these play a role in your approach or do you do without them? Well, so we work with John Sedbrook in Illinois State University and we work parallelly. He does the CRISPR side and we do the EMS side. Mm. Uh, yes, definitely CRISPR is a good tool. But uh, if we had not done EMS screen, we would not be able to find these uh, partial loss of function mm -hmm. in some of the genes we identified in our study. I mean, uh, that's how we know what would be an ideal target or not. Because if you just go by the Arabidopsis research, if we had picked any other gene, maybe we might affect the plant fitness negatively. Mm -hmm. So th th we, we have balance for both these techniques. We are not saying one is better than the other, but we think these both need to run parallelly to domesticate uh, any such new crops. Yeah. For, from the um, EU point of view, definitely there's some value to the EMS also from the legal side. So we're not so pro right. the GMOs with the CRISPR and the talent here yet. So right. this is an extra long-term benefit of domesticating the pennygrass. Yeah. Yes. And I imagine that there must be places in Europe which also have this like cold winter that is similar to the Midwest of the US, which would make it possible to grow here in the long run. Yes, so, no, our hope is that uh, once we build this model and these varieties together, I mean, we're hoping that it can be applicable to a lot of the cold climates, not just U.S. Yeah. And, um, and we are working with a lot of companies, international companies, who are, are looking at the food side of this, like mm -hmm. um, Walter, Walmart, PepsiCo, General Mills. Oh, wow, cool. So, yeah, that's so, they are, so we work with them on a very regular basis, trying to talk to them about the food and the feed markets. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So you're already like doing the next next step already to make it um, to to have it being commercially used, because quite often we have these cool findings in labs, and then it takes forever until they move out sort of in the real world or in the, in the world that people outside of research might, uh, where they might experience this. So it's cool to hear that you are already um, doing that step. And so to my, my questions to that is, um, how far away are we from, from seeing Pennycrest used commercially <laughs> in, in your estimate? Like, are we, is, it, is it something in a time frame of five years? Is it 10 years? What would you say? Oh, well, before I answer that, I'll say that we have a really strong team uh, here. Uh, right from starting from like agronomists, breeders, uh, geneticists, food 
scientists, nutrition scientists, supply chain. Uh, so it's a big team. And our hope is that since we all are working on different aspects, uh, we hope that we'll be able to launch this crop in less than five years. Wow. Wow, that's <laughs> impressive. Uh, and this is uh, mainly led by two people. I would say Donald Weiss, who's the director of Forever Green Initiative, Mm -hmm. And David Marks leading this genetic section of it um, has been really tremendous uh, progress. Cool. Okay, so um, is there anything else that you think that we've missed talking about today that you think is a particularly cool thing about your research or something else? Are there any other crops that you think might be able to be domesticated in similar ways to pennycress? Is there anything extra you'd like to, to tell us today? Yes, so our idea was like what why we want to publish this before we even have everything stacked into one plant is just we want to give people a strategy to think about that not everything needs to be taken through a traditional route of taking hundreds of years or more than few decades to domesticate a new crop. There might there are many such crops like Penicris out there mm -hmm. which might be simple, which are deployed and their genetics might be much easier to manipulate with these traditional tools and you might uh, follow these guidelines to domesticate those crops sooner than um, going with a much more complex genetic background for the immediate increase of biodiversity or any other benefits you may want to bring with those crops or to feed the human population you know yeah we were recently discussing um the amaranth on the blog which has some right. very cool features as well um, and it's not really being used so far. But I don't I don't know how easy its genome is and it's definitely not, maybe it's not as, as easy or as convenient as pennycress is, but there's definitely yes. some options out there, I guess. Yes, exactly. So that's one of the big message we want to give is the approach can be sometimes simple um, given that there is so much Arabidopsis investment gone for last 30 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really want to stress this again also to our, to our listeners that like the process that you did, this domestication is something that used to take years and years and years. And now with uh, the, the current research and modern research methods and um, smart teams like your team, we are now at a point where we, it can take less than a decade and significantly less than a decade from going from a wild species to something that uh, is commercially viable, that is uh, beneficial to ecosystems, to overall crop cycles. So um, I find that really, really impressive and I find that really cool to to just get that in your head. That we, yeah. Today we are able to do this with all the research that we've done before, with all the cool approaches that people come up with nowadays. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you touched really a little bit on the next steps in your research, which is like really stacking up all, all these genes. Um, right. Are you looking for collaborators or anything, like any people who want to now get in touch with you on, from the academic side? Do you still have um, like open spots in there where you're saying like, ah, it would be cool to have this and that um, skill uh, addition uh, to the team? Uh, so definitely, no, we, we are uh, out for collaboration. And also the other thing is, um, before I answer the question you asked, I think one thing what we are doing is since we realize that this is uh, so much like Arabidopsis, um, we've just started generating these resources, mutant resources and a mutant database, 
which people can access. Hopefully, we'll have it online soon, where people can access these mutants and request for seeds to do the biology, which is not be people were not able to answer in Arabidopsis, maybe due to the size of the seed or the size of the plant. You can do much more biochemistry in a mm -hmm. bigger system. So Penicris gives that advantage, and we definitely want to make it a, a supplementary model system to Arabidopsis, like a complementary where people can use this as a cross-reference system. And uh, so we are open to collaborator, and this push has been from both John Sedbrook and David Marks, where um, they are trying to release a lot of this material to the Arabidopsis Resource Center, and we. We hope that we can keep building that resources down the line. Actually, John Sedbrook was already kind enough to comment on our blog post that we did on Pennycrest, and he linked us to the resource center. He's like, this is where you should go. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll put the link as well in the, in the show notes here so people have it all in one spot. It's really cool. Yeah, it's, I, I really appreciate that, that you're not only doing the research sort of for your own, like for the fame of the group and your own sort of standing, but you're really building resources and inviting <laughs> more people. And I mean, it should be standard in research, but unfortunately, more often than not, you, you see people that... <laughs> Who studies science for the fame, though? This is very weird. I don't know. I know I've, I've definitely seen people in my days that would not share resources like that. They would be like, we have the mutants, and we will pump out all of the papers. Um, and it's really cool to he hear and, and see that. Um, it's a nice idea, think. example of how science should work with lots yeah. of different collaborators from lots of different fields really pushing one, one goal together. Exactly it's really my beautiful. Point. Exactly my point, yeah. Yeah, and come, uh, what what is next in terms of traits? Yes, there is a lot of things we are still have to answer, um, be it seed size, oil content, uh, protein content, and we are definitely working on it, and we are looking for collaborators every day. Um, and nice. so there's, there's a lot of opportunities still, and there's still a lot to be learned about Pennycrest. Cool. That's that's a nice way to close this. So, if people want to get in touch with you personally now and have some further questions that we might have missed today, is um, I know that you're on Twitter, so maybe you want to um, yeah, just mention how people can reach you there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Chopra twenty nine Ratan. It might be easier if you put it out there because yeah, uh, my, my, my name uh, is really. <laughs> <laughs> for people to catch <laughs> okay then we, we'll put uh, we make sure that everything is in the show notes that people can get in touch um, okay thanks yeah I think I think um, yeah thank you very much for, for your time it was really exciting to hear about that I will definitely be uh, think um, be thinking about the undergrad students beating fields of crops <laughs> with sticks for just in the in the name of research. I find that it's really cool. It's a beautiful cool. image. Yeah, and I, I I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes in my research, I would have wanted to do that to my plants as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's also double usage. Like you get out your residual anger or like frustration at your science, and then you also and you move science you. forward. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It's really great. No, thanks. We really appreciate that you guys have shown interest in Pennycrest. And we really want to tell this story to a lot larger audience, be it scientists or people interested in just the regular um, diversity of the planet, you know. Cool. Then um, thank you and goodbye. 
that was our interview with uh, Ratan Chopra uh, from the University of Minnesota on Pennycress. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our little interview. We certainly did. And with that... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're just looking at me expectantly like, it's your turn to talk now, Tegan. I was distracted. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's late. <laughs> I think I set the record for how many times somebody can say that's cool in an interview. Cause, yeah. I mean, I honestly just, it's cool. And I don't know how else to like explain. I mean, I even used it in the title of the blog post, the cooler cousin of a Arabidopsis. It's cool, guys. It's cool. Science is cool. And Pennycrest yeah. is super cool. Yeah. And I'm also still excited about the whole story, about the implications of it, about like the way they approach the, the science that they do. I think it's all really cool. And I think way more people should know about Pennycrest. And it's uh, probably great future in agriculture. And with that, um, I, we want to thank you for listening to this episode. The next episode will be again, also actually maybe not. Uh, I don't want to hint too much, but um, there will be a next episode. Maybe it will be a regular episode <laughs> again. Maybe we will have another special thing for you, um, which uh, yeah, is in the works right now. And thanks again to Ratan for making time. And thanks also to David Marks um, and everybody actually on the team who was involved in the publication. We have social media. It's Plants and Pipettes on Instagram and Facebook. It's Plants Pipettes on Twitter. <laughs> I don't use a Twitter. Yaram's in charge of Twitter. Yeah, because the end was too long for the handle. Please join us. Please tell our friends about us. Please tell us things that you want to hear about on the blog. Sometimes I don't have inspiration, so any suggestions are always welcome. Tell us when we do things wrong or when we don't explain things properly or when we make spelling mistakes in the blog because at the moment it's just my mother telling me that. So <laughs> please extend our audience to beyond my mother. And if you would like us, uh, le uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That helps us a great uh, lot. Five-star review, five-star. Yeah, uh, anything but a five-star review will uh, result in the immediate cancellation of this podcast. And destruction of the internet at large. At, yeah, there All will the be, kittens will be gone. There will be repercussions, definitely. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thanks, Philip. <laughs> we don't know you. Thank you. Thank you, and <laughs> see you next time. Bye.